Welcome to Get in the Herd, a podcast about addiction and recovery brought to you by the McShin Foundation. If you or a loved one are looking for real discussions about addiction, recovery, stigma, advocacy, and most importantly, hope, then stick around. Thanks for joining us. Now sit back and get ready for another great episode of Get in the Herd. John Shenholzer here, live from Richmond, Virginia. I'm the president and co-founder of the McChen Foundation, also a person in long-term recovery from substance use disorders. For me, that means I've been clean and sober. In two weeks, it'll be 38 years. And uh, I'm very pleased that I got two great people on the show today. Of course, Alex Bond, many of you know Alex. And I got my good friend, Robert Legg from Culpepper. And uh, I'm going to let them introduce themselves, and then we'll, then we'll jump right into today's dialogue. Alex, since you're an old salt, you go first. Thanks, John. Uh, my name is Alex Bond. I'm a peer leader here at the McShin Foundation. I'm also a house leader. Um, I help uh, host the podcast with John, uh, especially the after-hours ones. And um, I am also, a, most importantly, a person in recovery from substance use disorder. Uh, what that means to me is I had not found the need today to put any mood or mind-altering substances in my body for uh, just over 10 months. And um, I'm excited to be here, John. Thank you. Thanks for coming on, Alex. Robert, elevator speech. What, what are we working with? Hi, um, I'm Robert Legg. I'm from Culpeper. Um, I don't have any uh, long-term uh, stories uh, of uh, substance abuse. I don't even drink coffee. I haven't uh, had any alcohol or anything probably in 35 years. But um, I've mostly come to this from a perspective, a criminal justice reform uh, perspective. Uh, I did serve as a chair on a community services board. So I got a little more interested in the uh, uh, that aspect of it. Um, but um, I've always long been uh, interested in the criminal justice part and, you know, what's public policy. Uh, Robert, when did we first meet? Well, um, I'm trying to, th oh, I remember. <laughs> I invited you to uh, come to speak at a uh, community services board um meeting one time and uh hardly anybody ever comes to speak during those meetings and you spoke for a few minutes i think maybe five minutes i was only uh, vice chair at that time and um i remember the following week the executive director kind of fussed at me for uh allowing you to speak because you know you were from out of town and um but you know i was happy to have you uh said a lot for you that you drove all the way up there uh for that and uh then we did a a tour of uh, central virginia regional jail one time and another time i remember you came up with a group from the you know teenagers from the um mcshin academy and we spoke to uh uh nick Friedas 
and uh, that pretty much that sums it up. Then we did a couple other things, and I've been down to your place a couple times, um, but that's that's it for now. How, how do you think you first got hold of my name to invite me to come up here and speak? How did I get hold of what? How did you run across my name to invite me to come and speak? Oh, yeah. Um, just from Facebook. And I don't remember anything uh, in particular, but it must have been, you know, some subject matter came up that involved... Uh, Recovery, you know, recovery and drugs and stuff. Yeah, all right. We're gonna we're gonna get into that in a minute. I see Dan Snyder, the pharmacist, is tuning in, probably taking notes. For those of you who do not know Dan Snyder, he is the people's lobbyist as well as the pharmacist you've seen on Netflix. But uh, he also has a tunnel of hope. I think uh, I'll get tied to. It is the tunnel of hope. flashing up there. So if you want to get involved with some advocacy work and help change some policies, go to that website. Dan's an awesome advocate now for change in America. We're going to talk about that change in a little while. But I want to sum up what Robert is telling everybody. Robert is the past chairman of one of the 40 community service boards throughout Virginia. Robert took an interest in how to better serve his community when it comes to reducing the impact addiction has in his community. He ran across me and the McShen Foundation, most notably for our effectiveness and producing recovery results from the disease of addiction from substance use disorders. Robert and me, we traveled around a little bit to different areas in his district. He came down here, so he got well-educated on the recovery process from addiction. And I remember when we went into that regional jail, you were sort of timid and, and had hesitation in stepping in those cells. But it was like I walked in there like a duck out of water that got back to my water source. And I remember you were amazed at the connection we had and the humanity. And, and I was trying to convey to you that people locked up, most of them are addicts. They're my people, I'm their people. So when we go in there, it's connection to health and humanity. It's not shame on you. What the hell are you doing here? Do you recall that moment, Robert? Absolutely. Um, I tell that story often that, you know, we were on the tour with the uh, superintendent and the uh, uh, your, your friend Rusty, the uh, Commonwealth attorney from Louisa County, who sends more people to that jail than any other county. And we stopped at this one point, and uh, you were in there for quite some time. We couldn't hear anything because the, you know, everything was. I mean, we could see in there through the windows and stuff. I'm inside with with the inmate. But, but at first, you know, you were just talking to, to one or two, and then you could tell that you know some other ones were coming along. And it was it was a while that you were in there, ten or fifteen minutes. And then finally, you you know, motion to uh, have somebody open the door, and uh, as soon as you opened the door, there was this big applause, and uh, I I don't think that the superintendent gets that when he goes in to visit with them. So anyway, that um, I remember that really well. It was uh, made a real impression on me that uh, yeah. you, know, you got that kind of reception. 
Yeah, one of our uh, board members just tuned in, Debbie. Hey, Debbie. She remembered when the kids came up and saw Delegate Freitas at the time on the, uh, you know, the McShin Academy, the Sober High School. That was their spring trip. And just incidentally, on a sad note, one of those boys passed away. He was one of the first casualties of the COVID-19 lockdown. But oh. one of the memorable trips of my life was, was coming up there. You know, Robert, I want to I want to throw this out there too. Out of all the community service boards in Virginia, I've been doing this advocacy for 20 years. You were the first community service board chairman of the board that actually took an interest in the power of recovery and how important it was to try to get recovery services to your community. And I think you were able to see our vision and what you actually started the process to try to enhance your community with recovery support services provided by recovery people. And I honestly believe that is why you got run off of your board for lack of better phrase or term. You have thoughts on that? Um, I'm still in litigation. Well, don't, so, don't, don't give no plan away with litigation. Yeah. I, 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 no, but I, I think I think it's true that um, the, I love a good bit of get board, good bit of dissent and division. <laughs> the, the boards in you know I don't know that much about other boards and how they work and stuff, but from my observations, the community service boards, the board members themselves, really have very little influence over policy. I mean, some of it is set in stone by um, the, by the state, and then you know the rest is done by the people, the, the professionals, and you know there's just really not a lot of opportunity for um, you know board members to uh, have a real impact, and I think that's too bad. Yeah, it is. Hey, uh, I forgot one of my due diligence when I first started the show. We do have a sponsor for this show, uh, Adam Lillard, Lillard's Lawn Service. So I just want folks to know if you need uh, lawn services, to be sure and call Adam. His uh, phone number is 804-426-7688. I know Todd's going to flash his website and his phone number across the screen. He's an incredible, you know, landscaper contractor. So Anybody in the metro area needs some good work done in their yard, please call Adam. He's a great guy, does great work at very fair price. Dan, I see you hanging tough there today, good buddy. I wanted to drop back up to Alex for a minute, because Alex, you've been to jail recently while in recovery. Do you think being in recovery, going back to do that little bit of jail time was helpful to you, or, or what do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, at one point I was looking around my jail cell thinking, um, man, look at this recovery didn't do anything. It just put me back in jail. And then it put me back in a mindset where it was like, actually, my addiction is what's putting me in jail. And I've been grateful every single day that I'm not in there anymore. Once I finally got out, I, you know, put on my suit that I went into jail with and walked around and just breathed the fresh air and, and you know, connected with my higher power for a little bit. Just, it, it gave me a lot of gratitude. And then I came almost immediately right back to McShin and started working. And I've been busy ever since I got out. And, and it just really 
you know, I, I've had a lot of affirmations thrown my way. We miss you. You do a good job. And, and that sort of stuff has helped, you know, solidify me and keep me clean, actually. So it was almost kind of like a bit of a, um, you know, maybe not a, so much as an epiphany, but uh, a foundational moment in my recovery that furthered my commitment to this at the end of the day. Now, you've been clean how long? Ten months. Ten months. You got cleaned at the chin or you came here from jail? How'd that work out? Yeah, that's exactly what happened, John. I um, I got a DUI on September 16th. I got another DUI on September 23rd. They held me in Henrico jail without bond, said I was a danger to society and could not leave jail unless I was bonded directly to an organization or an RCO. Um, so I got two weeks clean in jail, came here to McShin, and uh, have been here ever since and just pretty much, as you say yourself, launching in my recovery, getting more and more responsibilities, taking on more, and um, just getting in the herd, for lack of a better term, and, and, and what I can do to help other people because that helps me. So, but you, you but the reason you went back a week ago is because you finally came to the end of your sentencing and then you had to go it didn't have anything to do with with me personally aside from dealing with something that happened when i was in active addiction so even though i was you know consistently doing the right thing and going forward and progressing in my journey it was a reminder that i still have consequences of my past life and my actions this is amazing a little mix of people here because we got got robert that he reads a lot. Robert's a very smart guy, man. He reads a lot. He comprehends what he reads. He sees the way our systems are working, not only on the healthcare side, the tax-funded healthcare agency side, but he's got a lot of knowledge on the criminal justice stuff, and he has knowledge on what other countries are doing. Alec, you're a good example of if we treat you with, the, with dignity and humanize your experience with your addiction, that we can get a good result and... You know, so I'm excited about that. We got Dan tuning in trying to change the world. So we got a good mix here. Robert, what is one of the first things you'd like to see change if you could change something about addiction and our criminal justice system? Well, uh, I see Portugal and they had a a pretty serious uh, drug problem in 2000 and they uh, made a lot of policy changes. Um, they, the, the thing that gets the most attention is that they decriminalize all drugs um, up to a 10-day supply, and I don't know exactly how it that uh, varies from you know drug to drug. And since then, they never did have the uh, death toll that we had here, uh, but they did reduce their uh, their um, fatal overdose rate from uh, by 90%. And now they have like 34 or 30 something uh, deaths uh, from overdoses a year. And that's in a, a, a country that's um, 10 million people versus uh, 8 million in, in Virginia. So it's you know, bigger. Let me put that in perspective to our listeners. Portugal is roughly the size of Michigan in population. Michigan, they have over 2,000 overdose deaths a year. This year, because there's a national spike because of COVID, they're probably going to reach 2,500, 2,800 deaths this year. 
Portugal had, I think, 35 overdose deaths, you know, last year comparable to over 2,000 with Michigan. So I would dare say that they definitely did a good job reducing the death. I think where a lot of people go wrong, see, in America, if you're an addict, and and number one, if you get caught with a 10-day supply, it's probably going to be a felony amount of drugs. Number two, if you have a a needle, a spoon, a, a pot pipe, those are additional felonies. If you're on probation or parole and you get one of these additional charges or felonies, then you can automatically go to prison and do your prison time. So I don't think the people in America understand. We're not trying to decriminalize breaking and entering, uh, armed robbery, or you know, or stealing from Walmart and Home Depot. That's still a criminal, and you get charged with the appropriate laws and offenses. We're just trying to separate the addiction piece out of the equation, treat that like the health problem that it is, and by doing so, huge reduction in the, the harm we're doing to our society, a big increase in public safety. Actually, people don't realize recovery equals public safety. So the more recovery, the more public safety we're going to have. So now, Robert, you talked a lot about you know, we need a federal starting point, but we need a local and state starting point. Here in the state of Virginia, I personally think one of the first things they can do is treat marijuana like alcohol. Take take that equation off the table. The second thing they can do is no more felonizing drug paraphernalia, 10-day supply or less, make it a misdemeanor, and, and I think the drug courts, they've got to stop only using that for convicted people or for felons and nonviolent offenders. You know, I'm pretty big on violent offenders getting the same service as anybody else. All violent offenders, 95% of them are going to be back in our community. So what better time to give them services equal to nonviolent offender services? So those are some areas I'm really concerned with, but also... We need capacity in the community to deal with this influx of consumers. That's where the recovery support service provider comes in. Alex is living proof. If you got recovery support service capacity that's affordable and available, Alex is living proof how this can turn out. I said a mouthful. Robert, you're a good listener. Does anything stand out to you that might be a good starting point at the local or state level? Okay, well, uh, I want to go back to what you were talking about, uh, de-felonizing, you know, possession. And I think that would be great for Virginia to do. And I thought, oh, well, that would never happen here. I mean, they can't even legalize marijuana. Um, But six states have already done that. Mm-hmm. And it's not just California and Colorado and Oregon and those places. It's Oklahoma, Utah, uh, Alaska, you know, deep red states that probably mm-hmm. voted for Donald Trump by, you know, 10 to 15 points or more. And so that gives me hope that, you know, we ought to be able to get something like that done here. And one of the other things that, um that they oh the other two states um the other three states were connecticut 
Colorado and um, California. California was the first in 2014. And um, since then, uh, actually even Ohio tried to pass a, uh, you know, a similar uh, referendum in uh, 2018, but it failed. Uh, but now the Senate is, uh, the, uh, the Ohio Senate is taking, uh, has passed a measure to uh, um, advance that, and they might be the seventh state. But, um, oh, and, and uh, Oregon is looking to fully decriminalize uh, something similar to uh, uh, Portugal. That would be the closest one. And even Canada is taking, a, especially uh, British Columbia, uh, is taking a close look at that. But, um, oh, and one of the other things that I think, let's see, was California and Oklahoma have made this um, basically retroactive and uh, they are going to, um, they've been, uh, made it so that it's, uh, they can uh, they expedite, expedite uh, an expungement process, which, um, so they, you know, people who had uh, uh, drug uh, possession charges from years ago, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, can get them uh, expunged. I mean, it's not automatic. They still have to go to court, and there is some uh, money involved. But, um, you know, that would make people that, um, you know, we're still walking around with a, a felony record that um, makes it much more difficult for them to find jobs and uh, public assistance. Uh, Virginia, at least, did finally allow uh, people who had been uh, convicted of felony to get um, food stamps. Um, but anyway, I think that um, if we could get all these people that have felony records just for drug possession and you know get them jobs that that is going to you know make the community safer and for you know there's a lot of for a lot of reasons um anyway well so let me if you don't mind, I think Lisa brought up a good point that, you know, her criminal history, all of her charges weren't substance charges, but they were petty crimes to fund her, her substance use. So, you know, e even though it's not, it, it is a nonviolent crime, but it's not a substance crime and it still is rooted in something that is in her substance use disease or something like that. So can we get to that, uh, you know, point two, or does it, are we just going to be able to expunge you know anything that's possession or or yeah, is that unrealistic for those that live long and were around back when the vietnam war divided our nation and one of the dividing components was draft dodgers when jimmy carter got elected in an effort to reunite our nation he did a pardon for all the draft dodgers and it looking back that probably turned out to be very healthy for our healing process in our nation. We have a drug war. A lot of people are drug war survivors on both sides, whether law enforcement or the consumer side. Well, I think this will go a long way to heal our nation, especially during the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, because a lot of our, our black communities were decimated by racist driven drug laws, you know, Jim Crow extension. So, 
I think this is a powerful opportunity, local, state, and federal, to really make some meaningful changes. So these conversations are critical and they need to be consistent. Alex, I'm curious, do you have a criminal record outside of DUIs or? It, it is entirely weed charges and and um, alcohol charges, drunken publics, DUIs, underage drinking, and you know, um, possession of marijuana. That's that's the extent of it. Well, the marijuana should have never even been an issue because that, no, and that's something that that had me lose my license for a full year, and you know, just kind of as Robert was touching on something that is now decriminalized had made made getting to work harder for me to pay for the VASAP that I had to go to to get my license back. And and you know, I'm kinda gonna have to deal with it again as as a result of my consequences. But, you know, how do I get to work to pay my license to get I mean, it's just kinda like, you know, um a vicious cycle that that you can get stuck in unless you get given an opportunity like McShin or something like that in my case. Well, I, I also, I got strong feelings toward mandatory sentencing, period. Yeah. Judges should be allowed to go under the guidelines. There shouldn't even really be guidelines, but I think they should be consistent with city conviction versus county conviction versus in the country conviction. So I don't think we should have sentencing guidelines, period, anything addiction related. And I think they should be similar in nature across the board statewide and i think i also think this just think if you have a, a mentally a mentally uh challenged child um you know one of the, the disorders they were born that way they clearly don't have all their faculties let's say they have an episode police are involved the the, the kid he, he might be you know 19 year old kid he probably got a 10th grade level but they get a tussle you don't you don't convict that guy with uh violent or, or what do they call it, some sort of heavy assault toward a police officer and these addicts and these alcoholics when they're in that mental state of addiction you know they they can be obstinate when they get around these law enforcement people and and you know you could be in a blackout spit on a cop and get a felony for that and i just think stuff like that is wrong i'm not saying you should get a pass but to felonize somebody that does something under the influence of drugs when it really doesn't involve, you know, a real crime like shooting or killing or robbing or raping, but just simple stuff, I think our laws are set up to be too heavy-handed to a very to an unsupervised criminal justice system, and I think that ties into some of the Black Lives Matter issues. You know, how do we simplify our laws across the board? I mean, Robert, you thought about any of that? Well, um, I was just going to say about the uh, the one you were talking about, uh, assault on a police officer, that is something that's supposed to be uh, coming up in the short session. Uh, you can get, uh, it's a six-month mandatory minimum, and, um, you know, most of the time it's, it's just used uh, to stack charges against defendants uh, to make them uh, plead guilty to something else, but it's just, you know, that's, that's the, yeah, it's one of the problems I think with the whole, um, you know, defund the police thing is that there's too much emphasis just on the police officers themselves. And there's so much else that's wrong, uh, that should be, uh, handled at the, in the general assembly, 
and uh, um, the prosecutors and you know those kind of things too exactly we have a general assembly problem and you're right in a lot of cases the policemen are, they're at the mercy of the general assembly and some of the ridiculous laws that they pass you're absolutely right about that you know i do believe in crisis intervention training i think if there's, if there's a drug-related incident or a mental health incident, nothing wrong with the policeman, first responders showing up, whoever's got Narcan or can de-escalate, that's fine. But I think a crisis team should deal with the primary rest of the, the, the event taking place. Um, but you're right, Robert. I've always said it's the lawmakers, and the lawmakers are influenced by special interests. I recall one time trying to get a bill passed like you mentioned earlier, stacking charges. You know, you, the, 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 the criminal defense attorney, they get paid per charge. So if you walk in there with 10 misdemeanors and four felonies, they get paid for that. Whether you get convicted of that or not, doesn't matter. That's the hit. So they had an interest not to dial back on drug laws because they're dialing back on their paychecks. And every, every industry that's touched by criminal justice, whether it be criminal defense, prosecution, jail, arrested, public safety, pre-trial, probation, parole, community correction, they all have an interest in keeping things steady as she goes. And that's that's one of our big challenges, you know, how do we make common sense change in the right direction? And Alex, you're a new guy to all this, you know, you get fired up sometimes, anything going through your mind? Well, yeah, and the, even the bondsmen got their hand in the pot with these ankle bracelet monitors that I've been, I was supposed to have on for 30 days that I've now had on for six months. I was supposed to get it off right when I get out of jail, but, you know, it's another great way that I can, I can, you know, get money out of it. I mean, it, it is just like, and, and I like that you guys kind of mentioned it, it is an infrastructure thing in general. It's a general assembly thing. It's, it is a police thing. And, you know, it, I think the de-escalation and crisis intervention is really important as well. It's not just a, you know, all cops are are bad, but it is like a, it takes more hours to become a barber than it does to become a cop. And I think that's a completely screwed up way of how to train people to deal with situations. If my instinct is to go for a gun, then it is to wonder why a person is acting erratically, then that's an infrastructure thing to begin with. Yeah, let me let me espouse another little dissertation hit, and I want to ask Robert his little thoughts on this. But if you think about America, our founding principles, all across America, policemen can snatch kids off their front porches who aren't breaking any laws, search them, seize property. They can actually go into a home if they smell weed or something inside your house you're supposed to be able to consume whatever products you want even during prohibition it wasn't illegal to drink in your house or on your front porch you just couldn't buy or sell it but yet here in 2020 our founding principles seem to me that they've all been compromised and we got to get back to our founding principles of, of this nation but that's snatching and grabbing and, and and going in on people's privacy in their home I mean, that, that's got to give. Robert, any thoughts? Yeah, well, maybe this isn't exactly uh, along those lines, but this is, reminds me of, you know, one of the um, things you hear a lot is people who, you know, get felony charges against them or, 
you know, get arrested, get go to jail. Um, is it, you know, they'll say, well, they should have thought about that or that, you know, you know, before they got involved with drugs and then, but it's not just about them. It's not just about the person who, you know, gets a criminal record. It's everybody. And, you know, it's the people who pay taxes for the jails. Um, it's, you know, when somebody can't get a, oh, the other thing we need to mention is that there is like a hundred or 150 different um, licenses that you can, that you have to get in order to work in a particular field that you can't get, or, or you can be barred just because of your, uh, because of a felony conviction. And, you know, when people are working in, you know, the evidence is very clear. The, when people are working in, you know, uh, good jobs, fairly high paying jobs, they're much more likely to stay out of crime. Um, they're much more likely to get married and have um, happy children and pay taxes. And then they buy stuff in the community from other people around there. So, I mean, it's not, I think too often this criminal justice system um, you know, discussion centers on, you know, that one person and, you know, oh, he should have done this or he should have done that. But um, I think what we're missing is how this affects the rest of the community. And, yeah. and not only that, but the, uh, um, the children that they raise, um, you know, when you, more, when you go to jail, you get caught up in the criminal justice system. The whole family gets caught up in the criminal justice. Exactly. The family goes to jail too, plain and simple. And, and we're putting able bodies behind bars just because they want to be an individual and, and pursue their own personal pathways. And that's just insanity. We've got to go back to jail and prisons being for real criminals, real crimes, have a healthcare system designed to deal with mental illnesses and substance use disorders. And you know, Virginia is only like 8 million people. And I think we had uh, close to like a million people at one time without a driver's license. And maybe yeah. 700,000 were felonies that were disenfranchised, you know, so not only does it affect your, your civic capacity to vote, but like you said, you can't get a paint contractor license or a car salesman license or a beauty parlor license or a real estate license if you're a felon. And, and there are barriers. And, and, and you know, Alex, you're a young guy. You got lots of years to live. I mean, how, how do you like growing old in a society that exploits the mental illness, you know? That's just not cool, man. Well, no, I look at what, what, what happens going forward, at least. I mean, one, one of the things that got, I, I think, enacted in July, on July 1st this year, was they can't suspend your license for unpaid court costs now. So as someone who was going to court very often and didn't have a license because of a weed charge, which is are two completely different things in general. I don't understand how this translates to that, why I get, you know, it, it, if it's Hammurabi's code, you should be able to, you know, if you steal something, get your arm cut off. It's a punishment that doesn't fit the crime. But I, I was continuously going to court, not being able to pay these court costs because I didn't have a license, then lost it for even longer. So it just, again, kept perpetuating forward like that. So seeing something as simple as decriminalization of cannabis in Virginia 
is a win. It's not enough, but it's it's progress in some sort of faction. And you know, not suspending and losing licenses for unpaid court costs is a win at the end of the day. Um, I, I am being told that Robert, did, you had a video that you wanted to show that was kind of touching on some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, do you, yeah, it's I hard. don't have it. But, oh, here are they going to show it now? Yeah, if you got it, I'll tell you about Alex Jenkins, a baseball player, a talented musician, and a kind and caring person. He also had severe anxiety and started self-medicating. He got arrested and convicted of a felony for low-level possession, and then he couldn't get a job. Alex wanted to turn his life around, so he went to rehab and got clean. Still, nobody would hire him because of his record, and it tore him up. He relapsed. He died of an overdose at 26. Alex is my son. Alex was sick. He wasn't a dangerous person. That's why we need Senate Bill 3, which reclassifies low-level drug possession felonies as misdemeanors. So Ohioans with addiction can get treatment, not felonies that make it harder to get a job, get an apartment, and go to school. We must stop this cycle and start treating addiction like a public health issue because no family should ever experience what we've been through. Well, that, that's what they're doing in Ohio, right, Robert? Yeah, well, this is interesting. I, I think that that uh, ad was made in 2018 when they had a referendum. Um, incidentally, uh, Mark Zuckerberg gave them a million dollars uh, to support that uh, measure, which did not um, did not pass. But anyway, I think that they've changed that video to uh, now it's about Senate Bill three, which did get passed. And I don't know where where it's going as far as uh, getting passed, but that would make them the the seventh state to uh, defelonize. Um, uh, drug possession. I'm surprised that didn't go through because uh, Governor Kasich, when he was governor, he was all about recovery and, rec and, rec and you know, good stuff like that. So, you know, Ohio's pretty aggressive on some good changes. So, they've had a real, real overdose problem. They're one of the top two or three, I think, in number of, uh, you know, drug overdose um, this, rates. This, this is going to be the worst year. Everybody, this is going to be. The worst year, the most overdose death. It's going to be the most relapses. We, we're in we're in for real trouble for the next probably eighteen months if we do not build up the recovery capacity in the communities. Even Doctor Dupont, Robert Dupont, one of the most notable experts in the field, he made it real clear that it's the recovering community that's getting it right. You look to that community, and, and you got some real answers to real solutions. Yeah, well, I think every every state uh, that passes it makes it more likely for another state. It makes it just you know more politically Absolutely. palatable for another state, and you know particularly because it's had you know a broad spectrum of you know uh, politics. Yeah, I like um, I like Marcus Mitchell's quote. He said. Yeah, the words life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness don't include the right to experiment with your own consciousness, then the Declaration of Independence isn't worth the hemp. It was written <laughs> on him, baby. And you know, because of a, a knee jerk political craziness, is how even hemp got 
basically eradicated from our society. And him, we lost 60, 70 years worth of, you know, financial gain and work. Yeah, employment. But but the uh, all the scientific studies we could have done by now, we could we could have had hemp everything in America right now. You can make I think plastic out of hemp that, that won't pollute the oceans. I mean, we're way behind the eight ball because of silly politicians and their little agendas and special interests. So, yeah. Robert, you the wizard, man. What else you got? Well, um, I would I've started a website and blog called reclassify up oh, i'm not hearing you now okay where we at okay so reclassify.org um where you can find out a lot more about this um reclassifying uh drugs um, and trying to get a, a bill passed in the next general assembly session to reclassify what? So say if it's substance one, two, three, they kind of just need to be rearranged. No, but um, to reclassify a drug charge from oh, a yeah. felony, I mean even a you know a microscopic amount. So don't uh, be word, yeah, don't use decriminalization because too many people are scared of that word. Use reclassify. Yeah, yeah that's a good little hint. Yeah, well, it's you know it's still, uh, I mean a uh, uh, a misdemeanor can still be a uh, a year in jail and a, I think a thousand dollar fine. So it's not um, insignificant uh, that people can can still do that. Oh, I want I had some. Let me see if I can put here. Well, oh, hold I, on a I would come prepared. Yeah. There were 4,008 defendants in Virginia Circuit Court for felony drug possession in 2018. Of those convicted, 1,907, about half, received a fully suspended sentence. 1,733 were sentenced to a year or less, averaging 118 days. 153 were sentenced to more than a year, averaging 723 days. So that comes out to about 315,000 bed days. And at $90 a day, that exceeds $28 million. And that doesn't include the people that originally went into jail um, uh, for their drug charge, but then later got a... Uh, um, a probation violation and went back to jail. So that's in addition to all those figures. And so if they had the. Are you trying to tell me that's the statewide numbers? Yeah. No, that's wrong because I know it's more than that. that, that okay. That looks more like just the city of Richmond numbers right there. Well, so, this, this is. Um, I mean, it might say the state, but that ain't right. I, he says for in Virginia Circuit Court. So. Well, you, um, got, you got ain't there another court? You got lower court, upper court. You got uh, well, the felonies aren't in uh, in uh, you know the uh, district court. They're only well, in uh, circuit court. There's like, there's like two hundred thousand drug court cases a year in Virginia now. They might mitigate them, plead them out. Yeah. They don't 
I don't know. Well, but this, this doesn't this doesn't include people that go through drug courts. And you know, probably, drug courts are probably, not getting a uh, you know a sentence. I mean, they're getting their charges dropped in drug court mostly. But we unless got, they don't yeah, we graduate. Got, uh, on any given day, we got roughly. 30,000 people in a local jail in Virginia on any given day, 30,000 people. That's a lot of court cases. And we got probably another 30,000 in our state correctional facility. At one time, we had like 78,000 people in corrections at either state or DOC in the, in the state level. But I think called the COVID and recent turn of events, they emptying out some of these beds. But Virginia still has a real high. Yeah, isn't it like a million people in general across the state? Is it what now? Is it isn't the the number across the state about a a, a million people incarcerated in Virginia? Or is that is that? Uh, uh, no, no, you got no. You but what I think he might be referring to is I'll bet you that there's a million people that are either in jail or um, on probation or have a uh, felony record. Now that, that's a yeah, pretty think, big number. It, yeah. If you want to add up all the convicted felons, everybody on paper, everybody in correction, that number might reach a million. You're right. Because I think there's 600,000 felons in Virginia. You got another probably 60, 70,000 on probation, parole, another 60,000 locked up. Uh, you, know, you, and then, I, you know, you probably got a lot of people that got in trouble 10, 15, 20 years ago that aren't getting in trouble. So I don't know. See, that's another problem. How the hell do you get the right number? You know, exactly. We, we live in a country where every single day, you know exactly how many people tested for COVID, how many people passed away from it. Every day there's a new count, but yet we can't get five year data or three year data. No, I mean Robert pulled out and pulled out a, a piece of paper that was that clearly was as professional as it gets, and that was from 2018. So that I mean that was two two yeah, and a half yeah. years well, ago. This, so. this came from somebody from the uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, Criminal Justice, you know. I mean, he was a yeah uh, a state employee oh, anytime i've tried to do research on this sort of stuff that's the most recent numbers i can get is two oh, years oh. over two years ago the only way you can get numbers you got to go to every single courtroom in virginia and get their past public <laughs> record and then you got to go through that's like a what is it, like a hundred and something different court jurisdiction two to three different courts you got you got juvenile you got circuit and you got the other one and then you might have traffic court, and then you might, and then you got drug court. So it takes a lot of work to get this data, but people, people don't want us to have it. You know what I mean? They're yeah. not easy to get. And then the reason is they don't want citizens raising hell about getting hoodwinked on tax dollars, especially knowing there's a better way to do things that aren't so expensive on the tax dollars. But then again, you know, politicians that need money to run their campaign, they got to pay back their People donate to them, and they do that through political appointments, bureaucratic systems. I mean, it's just our country is in a mess when it comes to all this. How many committees do you know that make decisions about recovery or addiction that that you have half of the committee members are successful recovery? I've never seen one of those committees, you know. So, you know, the, the, the fox is always looking after the hen house. 
Yeah, one thing I wanted to make sure we get in here is one of the the problems that should appeal to the general public is uh, if they're really concerned about you know drugs in the community is when you uh, give somebody who's not really uh, who's not a drug seller, you know, who's just charged with uh, you know a possession, but then gets this felony conviction, can't find a job. Still knows some people that he can get drugs from who end up befriending him and say, how would you like to make a little money? Um, that's just much more likely to happen when your choices for uh, employment are really limited. So every time that happens, these people have, you know, every single person has a, you know, a, a circle of friends. And so it's, you know, introducing the possibility of, drugs um, being sold to, you know, a much wider uh, number of people that might never, you know, come in contact with somebody like that. So um, it's just counterproductive. Yeah, I see uh, Gwen Smith, she asked if uh, we read a book by Beth Macy called Dope Sick. I've heard of it. I haven't read it yet. I've read it. It's, really, it's a good read. It's a good book. I just don't believe Suboxone is the solution for opiate addiction. It's a it's a tool, but not the solution. I still think anybody that writes about addiction in America sh should have to take a class on recovery, really being the solution, and that should be always be the goal, you know. And and to fund and heavily fund and throw all that all the money at a particular tool, I don't think that's good. That's not good business, you know. And that that's another thing that bothers me, like the state opioid response money. You know, Virginia got $43 million. And uh, I mean, here we are, the recovery community cranking out 50% of the results of recovery, yet we got very little of those dollars. It, it was just a, such an imbalance of distribution of these, these tax dollars. I mean, somebody at the top got to break out a pencil and do the math. Where are we getting the best results for our tax dollars? Why do we keep throwing all this money to stuff that does not work as good as this other stuff that's less expensive and has a better outcome? I mean, I, I use the I same. I think the money is a key. It's a key element, the money, and I think that um, needs to be brought up more. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, I know, Gwen. That was a great history book. She did do a great job. I'm telling you, I liked it. I co-signed the book. It's a good book, you know? I'm just saying... In the end, you know, I think you should be talking a lot more about recovery than, than uh, medication because the cure for addiction is not going to be in medicine. It's going to be in recovery, which is going to be spiritual in nature. So I'm not saying meds ain't good tools, though. So anyway, I ain't going to argue that point any longer. What do you think, Alex? What are you thinking? I, uh, you know, I, I don't think we touched on that ad enough because, frankly, that, that story up until the relapse and overdose down to the name is exactly what I have been dealing from dealing with. I mean, I came into recovery, um, got clean, got a little clean time and I started looking for work. I had three great job opportunities where they hired me, called me after a background check and said, um, this isn't going to work out. And I just explained to you guys that all I had, not all I had, but it was all, you know, DUIs and, and substance charges. So even something as that kept me out of the door of 
fields that I clearly was capable of doing the job. They hired me. I told them what I was dealing with, what I was going through. And, you know, thankfully it, it, it gave me this job opportunity, but I just wanted to say that that ad was, is currently to date my story. And at least by the grace of God, I haven't relapsed and overdosed yet, but it's a perfect example of, of, of the necessity to defelonize this stuff. And I'm, I'm grateful enough to, you know, most likely get my third DUI dropped from a felony because of um, this program, my clean time. And, um, you know, that, that doesn't happen to everybody. Not everyone gets as lucky as I do. So the infrastructure needs to give people these opportunities that I've been given. You know, we, we recently did a new law went into effect July 1st, and I haven't seen anybody write a story about it. I haven't seen it in the media. But if somebody's overdosing and the person overdosing and, and the person calling 911, neither one of you are supposed to get arrested. Mm -hmm. Taking the threat of arrest off the table. And <clears throat> I just don't see why that wasn't a big news story. But at the same time, if these guys are going to be overdosing and they don't get arrested, that means we need the capacity in the community to help these people. And there is no greater, more inexpensive solution than simple detox and a few bucks, sober living and recovery community connection. And, and, our, and our policymakers are scared of that because they can't own it, they can't control it, but they can fund it and reimburse it and get the result we need. So, you know, there's just so much work needs to be done by all of us. Speaking of that, Robert, what do you think we can do with the recovering community as people in recovery in this field, in this space? You know what we're about. You know we're all about recovery and trying to change systems. What do you what are some suggestions you can make to us? Because you're not in you're really not in recovery, so you, you know what I'm saying. You know, you're a smart dude though. What are we missing? Well, I think the getting rid of the you know, the felony record. Uh, would be one of the best things to uh, help people uh, get a better job and have a, you know, stay out of crime. And I just think that would be, that would be the best thing for the whole community. You know, Marcus brings up a good point. You mm -hmm. know, 20 years ago when we started our journey with the advocacy, you know, I've been cleaning sober almost 38 years, you know, for decades, people fall to recovery is abstinence-based, don't use drugs. Well, in the last 10 years, it's about multiple pathways, which is good, you know, we need multiple pathways, meet people where they're at. If you're doing less harm to yourself today than you did yesterday, that's a recovery trajectory by all stretch of the imagination. Harm reduction, is great you know I'm, I'm i'm so in favor of massive harm reduction it ain't funny harm reduction is a piece of recovery you're in a recovery journey you know so you know more harm reduction you know more meeting people where that more connection engagement all powerful things that got to take place you know but I, but I like the language i use you know i like recovery what it means to me and, and how i roll um, there is a lot of splintering in our our space. Even the recovering people with the different pathways are splintered from each other. And and I think the bureaucrats and politicians, they like it. When we're 
disenfranchised and splintered, they keep doing what they're doing. But until we all align ourselves and unify and go at them with particular messages and, you know, asks, it's not going to change. Robert? Robert got that look, Alex. <laughs> deep and deep. deep, and deep, and deep. Yeah, he might have locked up on me. All right, look, gang, we've been going at it almost an hour now. Any closing thoughts? Uh, Robert, anything we haven't touched on you'd like to touch on? Well, one of the things I uh, – am I going to be too choppy here? No, you go. We hear you just fine. Okay, okay. Right. Is, uh, you know, a lot of times when we try to influence public policy, we end up, you know, trying to think of, you know, what can we say that would convince somebody? And I think that – uh, the angle that I prefer to take is to try to ask questions of somebody. And I have a few here. Um, does a felony drug record help or hurt someone recover? And I think, you know, most people are going to say it hurts. Right. And then they start to think about it a little bit different. And I think you could say this, you can go right on down the line of you know all these other things that a, does a felony record help or hurt somebody find, finding a job does a felony record help or make communities safer or not safer and i just think that uh rather than trying to convince somebody i think if you ask the right questions and then you have the right follow-up that then you can get them to convince themselves mm -hmm. You know, little added value to that. I'm, a lot of folks don't realize, but I was a very successful paint contractor for 30 years. 25 painters, seven trucks. I had 3,500 customers. I always wore my recovery on my sleeve. My painters and paper hangers, they were mainly people in recovery. And my customers knew it. And... I, I personally haven't had a felony yet. I still might get one as long as I'm alive. I'm at risk of a felony. But I think in my case, there was no stigma to me or my company. And any customer I worked for, we were a great face and voice of recovery. We were honorable. So I think the stigma to these felonies and these felonies where you can't get a job, yeah, it, it impacts the hell out of a lot of people because not everybody's going to be self-employed. But I think I think as a nation and as a community, we have got to hammer stigma out of the picture. I think stigma is a big, big problem. And I think stigma, the the flame of stigma is fanned by uneducated people or people who don't want to accept scientific truth. You know, if you don't think addiction's a disease, you're in denial. You ain't listening to the scientists. Alex, closing thoughts. Um well, Robert, it's been an absolute delight. Um, I, I would also like to see um, a list of those questions, if, if there's a possibility of a way that um, that could be shared. I don't think I'm, I'm the only one. And, and well, they, they review the, the video and get the questions right off of the video. They're here for in perpetuity. In perpetuity. Um, I personally have, have, have thought this was a great conversation. I don't usually think about reclassification of felonies because I'm fortunate enough to not have one, as John said, but I've been staring, staring down the barrel of that, that gun for about 
10 months now knowing that I have a felony that I'm looking at that is most likely going to get um, reclassified. But, you know, I'm, I'm just thankful to be here and to be a, a part of this um, enthusiastic conversation, frankly. Anybody don't have a felony, remember the old three strikes, you're out, you get three misdemeanors, you can be a felony. Mm-hmm. And they're going to start charging you with a misdemeanor for texting and driving, misdemeanor for not wearing a face mask in a government building. It's just a matter of time for three strikes and you're out. You're going to catch a felony for texting and not wearing a face mask. So don't be surprised. Our, our government has a way of just inventing felonies for people. And, you know, people might think that's a little whack statement, but I never thought you could smoke pot, get busted three times for smoking weed and be a felon either. So... You know, we got you know, we're at risk of you know. I'll think. Anyway, this was a great show. I do want to give a last shout out to Adam uh, Lillard's Landscaping Service and Yard Service. He's a wonderful company. Be sure and call for your landscaping needs. His information is going to scroll across our our site here. So call Adam for all your landscaping needs. You won't be disappointed. Thank you everybody for tuning in. With you know, as always, great show. Anybody want to be on the show, you got something to say, you carry a conversation. We're always open to guests and critics alike. And uh, this is just more more content for the recovering world out there. Y'all have a great day. And, and until later, more will be revealed. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Big shout out to you, Todd. All right. Thanks. We'll see you.